at Revelation chapter 9. Revelation chapter 9. Be looking at the whole chapter, verses 1 through 21 of Revelation 9. This also is God's holy word. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth. And he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. <clears throat> then the smoke came, then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. Their hair like women's hair and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron. And the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions. And their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name is, in Hebrew, is Abaddon, and in Greek, he is called Apollyon. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. A number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, by these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. The rest of mankind, who were not killed by these plagues, did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Maybe go to our God and ask for his blessings on the reading and also the preaching of his holy word. Our blessed God, we Thank you for the opportunity to come before you. And Father, we acknowledge that your word is truth. 
that your word give us, gives us uh, stern warnings, warnings that we ought to heed, warnings that, uh, that the unbelieving scoff at. But yet, Father, your word does not cease to be truth. Father, we acknowledge that your word tells us that there will be scoffers uh, from the past, from the present, and in the future, that they will, the scoffers will always be there, that there were scoffers in the time of Noah. Father, we acknowledge that uh, there were scoffers even to the day uh, of the worldwide flood. Father, we pray that we would believe your word, that despite uh, what others say and the opposition of the world, Father, may our trust be in you, that your word is true, that your promises are sure. We thank you that in Jesus Christ, we have our true hope for forgiveness and eternal life. We thank you for his promises. We thank you, Father, for your mercy to us. And we pray that uh, even as we face the opposition of the world, that we would find our true comfort, our hope, and our joy in you. And we pray, Father, that the gospel uh, would go forward even this day, that many would hear it and believe. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> Have you met people, perhaps you're one of them, where you're not one easily to admit when the game is lost? So whether it be a board game, whether it be uh, various situations in life, that are you the last one to admit that uh, it's over? Perhaps driving a car, you might be the last one to admit that you're lost. Everyone in the car knows that you're lost, and then you're still driving. Well, is it ever the case that you see, even in this situation, that uh, the, the card is stacked against people? We see here about how these locusts, or uh, what are demons, that they're sent out from the opening of the shaft of the bottomless pit, and that they send deceptions. Uh, they send to strong delusions. And we ought to understand that despite uh, the torment, people still don't come to the Lord for forgiveness. That in their suffering, uh, they're not going to the Lord to find true hope for forgiveness and true life in Jesus Christ. Even when the next stage comes, when there is the taking of life, there is the decimation that a third of mankind is killed, uh, that man still says, you know what, I'm not going to back down. I'm still going to oppose God. I'm still going to hold on to my sins. We see in, in these situations that sin is inherently stupid. Sin is illogical. Sin doesn't make sense. Sin doesn't think about the long term, doesn't think about eternity. Here, this book of Revelation was written particularly to the early church, the first century church, particularly during a time of great persecution. There were those in power. There were conquerors who came, conquerors who proclaimed themselves as, uh, as deities. And they required absolute obedience. They required worship. But we ought to understand that these are not mere words that we acknowledge of others. That this word, revelation, was given to God's people, uh, particularly to encourage them as they face the trials and the sufferings and the persecutions of life. 
we ought to understand that this book came with great promises. Revelation 1.3, that there was blessing promise to those who read, to those who hear, to those who keep this word of prophecy. Uh, it's easy for someone to think that there is meaning in every single detail uh, and symbolism uh, that's presented. And my encouragement, especially in a chapter like this, Revelation 9, that, is that we don't get lost in the details. I'm not going to give you explanations to, to every single detail. And if you ask uh, 100, 100 ministers, 100 uh, scholars who have studied this book for, for decades, you'll probably get 100 different answers. What we ought to do is focus on the big picture of what we're seeing. Focus on the promises. Uh, focus on the fact that Jesus indeed is victorious and that he protects his people. So the truth that we see in Revelation 9, trumpets 5 and 6 unleash Satan's torment and decimation of unbelievers, but still they harden themselves and refuse to repent. Trumpets 5 and 6 unleash Satan's torment and decimation of unbelievers, but still they harden themselves and refuse to repent. We'll look at this in two points. First, the fifth trumpet, the distress of unbelievers. And second, the sixth trumpet, the decimation of unbelievers. So the first point, the fifth trumpet, the, the distress of unbelievers. We have that in sections 1 through 12. Uh, uh, let me just read starting from verse 4. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. <clears throat> Here we think back to uh, some of the things that were happening. And we describe Revelation. So there's various views that people can take. And we acknowledge that each of these different views, uh, ways of interpreting Revelation, that uh, they're, at, they're not absolute in, in the sense that it's all of one or all of, all of another. So oftentimes people think of uh, Revelation in terms of the futurist view, that everything from Revelation 4 to Revelation 22 is speaking about something, an event in the future. And those also would particularly see these events that are future as completely linear, meaning that uh, Revelation 4 to Revelation 22 speaks of things that don't repeat. When in fact, what we see uh, throughout this, this book of Revelation is that there are repeating patterns. You see that in the breaking of the seals, the blowing of the trumpets, and then the bowls of wrath. That each time it's, it's presenting uh, another vision and it's giving us uh, more clarity and it reveals more about God's plan and what he's doing. In Revelation 6, with the opening of the seals, it seems as if the focus was on the people of God and the effect on the people of God. Or you can say affecting both believer and unbeliever alike. That there was suffering. That there would be the conqueror. There, there would be death and famine. That there would be discord. Uh, here we, we see in Revelation 7 that there was this interlude. And that God halted everything so that believers 
that the elect could be sealed. And then we see the effect of that in this chapter 9. That the sealing of God's people was for a purpose, particularly with the blowing of these trumpets. Revelation 8, we had the blowing of the first four trumpets. And these appeared to be the cataclysmic events, the natural events uh, that occurred uh, regarding the world. And yet here, trumpets 5 and 6 seems to be speaking about spiritual forces, that uh, there, there were things happening in the spirit realm. In verse 1, it begins, And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. Earlier, we had heard about a star that had fallen. And then later in Revelation 12, we also hear about a dragon that was thrown down. So each of these mentions seems to speak about similar events, about a serpent, the serpent that was cast down. Jesus described this very event, Luke 10, 18, when he said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. So it is uh, this Satan who is this star that has fallen. And we know that the star is not merely an object. It's not merely an inanimate object because he says, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. So the star is then referring to a, a person, to an individual. It's, it's not merely an object, and, and this is Satan that the key that Satan possesses to this abyss, to this bottomless pit, he is given by God. <clears throat> Here, he was given, so it speaks in the passive, but the person giving it to him is God. And we ought to acknowledge, even as we read Revelation 9, is that despite all the power and all these forces at work, that God is one who is sovereign over all of it. It's not as if uh, anyone at any time is autonomous of God. It's not as if anyone uh, has, has a leash that's long enough that they can do whatever they want and get away with it. This bottomless pit that's open, verse 2, he opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. We notice this even in the account of Christ's crucifixion, that when Christ was suffering on the cross, that, uh, that the sun was darkened. We see here, this, the sun being darkened is a sign of judgment, the sign of judgment to come or a sign of present judgment. These locusts were released there in verse 3. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth. They were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. Locusts, we don't see them very often except maybe a, a few here and there. I mean, they're likened to uh, like a grasshopper, but they come in hordes where however many, you know, hundreds of millions of them, they come and each one takes a little nibble of a plant and you're eventually left with no trees and no crops. They completely destroy. That's, that's the very image, this uh, devastation. For principle, we think about interpreting revelation. And the encouragement that I've given you is that we would not interpret revelation 
as we look to our newspaper or the modern way, look to your phone's news feed and, and try to interpret revelation in light of everyday or current events. Uh, those in the past have, have described, have done this, and they said, well, the description of these locusts, which fly, is that they're like helicopters that, that, that bring bombs and, and machine gun fire. Well, we ought not to think that way. Instead of thinking about our modern news feed and then the book of Revelation, it's far better that we reference the Old Testament as we read Revelation. And, and there we'll, we'll hear... Uh, certain echoes of the past. The locusts, that, that was one of the plagues, uh, was it uh, in Egypt? And, and then you think about the book of Joel and God speaking about uh, sending locusts to destroy. These locusts mentioned in Revelation 9 are not literal locusts. They're not the insects, but rather they're, they are demons that appear like locusts. In verse 4, we have uh, the target of these demons. That verse 4 mentions that they were not to harm the grass, the green plant, or tree. Uh, and this gives us some indication that, uh, that they weren't locusts. There's also a mention later about how they have a king over them, the angel of the bottomless pit. But... Uh, there's a proverb that says that the locusts don't have a king, yet they proceed in, in, in order, is it in ranks. And, and so here, it's, it's, uh, it's not literal locusts. Uh, obviously, the demons uh, are, are followers of Satan, uh, the fallen angels. Uh, but here, uh, it's, not, it's not the literal locusts being spoken of. We have also, though, there is restraint upon them that they were forbidden. They were forbidden to harm those uh, who have the seal of God on their foreheads. Instead, we're told that it was only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Oftentimes, people will, will say that, uh, well, the believers had already been raptured out, right? So this was the tribulation and that believers were already raptured out but here we have some indication that they were there. Believers were still there. The reason being is because here these locusts, these demons, were only to attack those who didn't have the seal of God on their foreheads, implying that there were others who had the seal present. <clears throat> we see that the situation here about how they were allowed to torment, verse 5, they were allowed to torment them for five months but not to kill them. The leash that God had given them was very short and also very specific. It sounds very much like the, the situation that Satan had with Job. That uh, Satan was positive that Job, if God were to strike him, that, uh, that Job, a faithful, righteous man, would curse God to his face. And yet the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power, only do not put forth your hand on him. That was in chapter 1. So then his, uh, his children were killed. Was it his, his property, his wealth was taken. And then in, in chapter 2, he didn't curse God, right? So then Satan says, Hey, but if you touch him, he'll curse you to your face. So then God says, Behold, he is in your power, only spare his life. 
You see that there's leashes that God has even on demons, and they cannot exceed it. You notice in verse 6 speaks about the pain, the torment that these demons brought. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. Their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. So here we have in Revelation some very descriptive, very symbolic language. So we talk about pain. I think back then, uh, especially in their environment, they probably would run into scorpions rather often. And typically the scorpion sting uh, doesn't kill people. Uh, it's not poison enough to kill, but it sure hurts. So they would have understood it. I remember being in a house in central California uh, on a ranch where there was a scorpion on the ground. And, and it, was, it was only about you know, two inches big, and I almost stepped on it. They had the, a, a shaggy carpet that was mottled, and it blended in very well. Uh, but uh, no, no sting on my foot. But here, you think about how it might have been common back then for people to understand the pain of a scorpion sting, that they're speaking uh, in ways that people can understand. This torment was supposed to be so great that people would desire death as an escape from it, uh, that they will seek death and not find it. But we acknowledge that this torment from these demons was not primarily physical. It seems like the, the torment was spiritual. It was mental. It was psychological. The psalmist in Psalm 73, he begins uh, that psalm by speaking about how he envied non-Christians, those who were the wicked, the, those who were not believers. And as if at times we also fall into that trap <clears throat> to think that somehow those who are outside of the Christ just might have an easier life. Well, is it the case that <clears throat> the demon's torment of unbelievers suddenly started in this stage here being spoken of in this particular time? Or is that torment something that's, that's always been happening? Do you think that the non-Christian actually has an easier life than those who are followers of Christ? There's one thing that they do not have. They do not have a protector. They do not have a true refuge. They do not have an advocate. And they do not, they do not have one who intercedes. I realize I said that's one thing, but... Uh, we realize also that those things are all the same thing, that we have God who gives us true comfort. We have Jesus who intercedes for us. We have the Holy Spirit who comforts us and is our advocate. There's no hope because there's no one else they can go to. You realize it is not a small thing that you and I can go to our God in prayer. We have in Jesus one who, is, who understands our weakness. He is able to empathize with us. And we have the Holy Spirit who comforts us. It's no small thing that we have as Christians. <clears throat> Regarding the description of these locusts, verses 7 through 10. <clears throat> these, they're like horses ready for battle. 
And the description of these locusts uh, often is spoken of in simile, like horses ready for battle. Uh, these demons are not coming uh, ready for an afternoon stroll. They're ready for battle. They have uh, heads with crowns of gold, meaning that there's certainly some type of deception, some type of attractiveness to the work of demons. When you think about the temptations that Satan gives, just think of the temptations that Satan gave to Jesus in the wilderness, having uh, fasted for 40 days. That oftentimes, the presentation that Satan gives us, the Lord gives us the promise of true riches, eternal riches. But the challenge is that we have to believe by faith that they're already ours. God is not saying that maybe someday if you work hard enough and you try hard enough, I'll give them to you. Well, there's a number of falsehood there. The, the trying part, right, if you work hard enough, the working part, and then maybe someday I'll give it to you. Well, it's, they're already yours in Jesus Christ. His merits have obtained it for you, and you are called to receive it by faith. They're already yours, kept in heaven for you. Satan comes by and says, oh, well, riches, I can give you those riches. They're worldly riches. And he promises that you can have them, not in eternity, but right now. And he promises that you can even have them forever. But the last time I checked, no one takes it with them. And the reason why we know is because it's still here. The wealth still remains. Other people become the stewards of it. So there, there is a deception, this crowns of gold, that they come with deception. They come deceiving people. They understand uh, the sins of men. You know, first, first John 2 speaks about uh, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life, that they use this to harm men. We think about the, the, uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that Eve had her own reasonings, that it was pleasing to the eye, that she, not, that she thought, oh, the fruit actually looks good. But at the same time, Perhaps you've noticed that some of the best tasting fruits are actually the ugliest ones. You, you go to the tropics, where, of course, the tropics have the best fruit. The ugliest fruit are always the best tasting ones. I assure you of that. They are. Okay. So it was pleasing to the eye. It was good for food. How would she know that? She didn't know that. She hadn't eaten it yet. And it was desirable to make one wise. That's, that's kind of what Satan said. So, so Eve thought all these things, meaning that in her own mind, she was reasoning uh, she was coming up with bullet points for why it is good to eat the fruit. And so also Satan offers you the world and he promises you that your, these shortcuts that he gives you will get you there. Jesus, you can have the world. You can have all of it. You don't need to go through the path of the cross and suffering. And so also you think about the promise that he gives to us. Hey, Look at Jesus. He suffered greatly. And you have to accept by faith that, that he is exalted to the highest place. Why, why bother that suffering? Why, why wear the crown of thorns? You can wear the crown of glory right now, today. That these locusts had human faces. 
You know, human faces. You know, certain, certain tests are often done where you have some kind of criminal and uh, does the criminal uh, pose enough of a danger that he has to be apprehended and put in jail until his court case uh, for him to be uh, tried, found guilty, and then sentenced? Or is he not enough of a danger that you can let him be in society until his court case comes up? Did you know that for, for judges who have been face-to-face with these criminals, that they're, they're wrong, it seems like, as often as they are right. Meaning that, hey, there's, if you flip the coin, you, you could be as, as good off. Meaning that, is this person in danger of reoffending right away, causing death or danger to others? That the idea of a judge talking to this person, looking at their face, judging by their facial expressions and their speech and all the nonverbal communications, it's saying that these sinners who were psychopathic or whatnot, they were hardened criminals, hardened sinners, they were so good at deceiving that the judge who, who interacts with these kinds of criminals every day, all the time, they were deceived. And so also, you think about these demons, it says, human-like faces with the expressions. Can, can expressions be fooled? Well, certainly they can. Certainly they can. They had hair like women. This is the interesting thing. Hair like women. I had to give this some thought. What makes women's hair so much more appealing than man's hair? Yeah. My daughter says, it's the length. Yeah, women have have long hair, men have short hair, well, generally. But even when men grow long hair, they don't seem to spend the time, right? And, and for many men, they seem like, even with short hair, uh, the, the hair is so insignificant that, that God causes the hair to fall off, right? We have less hair over time. But here, I'll describe to you why, why it's the case that hair like women, women tend to spend a lot more time on their hair. And uh, there's, yes, a, a substantial, uh, substantial quantity of it. But even the scriptures, First, uh, first Corinthians says that a, a woman's hair is her glory. It's her covering. There's a certain attractiveness to women's hair. Hey, if you ever see a commercial of a woman finely dressed, whatever they're selling, whether it be alcohol or, or makeup, I mean, you never see a woman with nice makeup and then her hair is just, uh, you know, in in a bun or, you know, covered up with something, right? It's always she has to have a nice, fancy hairdo uh, with plenty of time spent on it, whether it's crimping or waving or curling or whatever's the case. But it's saying here that the demons have women, have hair like women. It implies that there is a certain deceptiveness. There is a certain seduction that they have. They tempt, these demons will tempt with their wares, knowing the weaknesses of sinners. And that they have teeth like lion's teeth. Lion's teeth is designed for devouring flesh. Now, there was a period when uh, I had some, I had some digestive issues. And uh, I talked to my uh, doctor and the doctor, this is a uh, Eastern doctor, the doctor had said, hey, there's a very simple solution. 
uh, but it requires a lot of work, is you're not chewing your food enough. It's stressing out your stomach uh, you know, to digest. So you, you need to chew your food 30 times before you swallow. And, and I realized, wow, that, that stretched out my meal a whole lot. And, and I realized also, hey, I don't chew enough. But you think about these lions, they don't chew their food. Their teeth are designed to rip. And then they, they gulp, they gulp their, their meat down. So this teeth-like lions is that these demons are going to devour people. Satan uh, roams around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. That they have breastplates of iron. They have breastplates of iron. Men without the spirit. Men without the spirit of God. Uh, who do not have the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. That they have really no defenses against these demons. For demons uh, dealing with uh, the unbelievers, it's, it's almost going to be like uh, taking candy from, from a baby. And the breastplates that they describe, breastplates of iron, you and I can expect that the teachings, the values, the ideals, uh, and the laws that are promoted by these demons, you can expect that they will have legal backing. They will have the support of the rulers of the land. You can expect that they're their opinions are going to be exceedingly popular. Just as you can expect that what you believe about Jesus Christ, about righteousness, it will be scoffed at. It will be ridiculed. They're going to, they're going to tell you, because I've had this happen. People tell you, Frank, you live in the Stone Ages. Why? Well, you, you still believe uh, these ancient laws and, our, and, and values that don't apply today. Okay, well, I wasn't expecting that Christ would be popular, and so also, neither should you. I ask you, regarding uh, these common messages of today, the common thoughts, what, what secular men cling to so strongly and promote as, hey, this is good, this is righteousness. This is love. Have you ever asked why? Are you willing to accept those messages quickly and easily? Hey, you know, this is, this is what everyone's saying. We should believe it too. Or are you discerning enough to say, wait a minute. How do those things, how do those messages, how do those values line up with the teaching of God's word? you realize that it means that you might be passed up for a promotion if you question it. It means that you might be fired from your job. This is exactly what was happening back then in Revelation, when they weren't working for corporations, but uh, you know they had these eating clubs uh, for people who were part of guilds. They had some, some type of skilled labor, and they were part of a guild, and, and there were activities that they had to do in order to be part of the guild. But there was a decision. Am I going to have membership in this guild because there's feasting and there's immorality going on? Or am I going to do what is right? Meaning, I became a believer and I once was involved with these things, but Jesus is saying I cannot do that anymore. And so also we think about these messages. Uh, we're not saying that you need to be some kind of a lightning rod, but you have to understand that... Uh, we ought not to take the values 
and the standards of the world as our own, that we worship a new Lord in Jesus Christ. Now, he is the one who commands our conscience, not the world. We see also the warnings about the end result there in verse 11. They have a king over them, the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek, he is called Apollyon. <clears throat> so the big question about Revelation, uh, and in my own mind, it's still not settled, uh, is uh, who, when was it written? Was it written in some time in, in the 60s AD, or was it later in the 90s? And the big question is, okay, so was it during the time of, was it Nero in the 60s, or was it time of Domitian in the 90s? Whatever's the case, these, these Roman uh, Caesars, they called themselves, uh, they identified with Apollo, the Greek god Apollo, the destroyer, because they saw themselves as destroyers. Very interesting. Maybe it was a John's jab at some of these Caesars. But Hebrew, meaning Abaddon, this is destruction. And Greek, Apollyon, meaning the destroyer. Those who follow, those who believe, those who value and treasure the ways of the demons and their deceptions, the end is death. The end is destruction. The end is loss of life. For those who believe and esteem and follow the teachings of demons, their end will be destruction. It's a reminder to us that despite the support of the world and their favor, when the world smiles upon us, when we, for a brief time, accept their standards, this passage is a reminder that there is no true hope. There is no true life. There is no true victory for those who follow the deception of demons. Are you going to trust God at his word? Or are you going to follow the ways of this world? What standard will you follow? What good news will you believe? So that's the first point. The fifth trumpet. <clears throat> the distress of unbelievers. We have the second point, the sixth trumpet, the decimation of unbelievers. <clears throat> we have that in verses 13 to 21. We're reading from uh, verse, uh, verse 14. Saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. Released to kill a third of mankind. <clears throat> Here in verse 15, the four angels were released. They were prepared for that time, the hour, the day, the month, the year. They were released to kill a third of mankind. So before, there was a restriction. The demons were allowed to torment the unbelievers, but they were not allowed to kill them. Well, here we have that restriction has been lifted and that they were allowed to kill a third of mankind. It's a reminder to us that God is in con complete control of the limits of their actions, the demon hordes. The previous restraints have been lifted. Decimation. 
uh, refers specifically to the punishment imposed upon Roman armies, to uh, legions, that if, if especially if a Roman general did something that was deemed bad by his leaders, that uh, they would punish him by killing every tenth man in his unit. This is called decimation, de des deci meaning ten. And, but we ought to understand that this decimation is just a, a large loss of life. So a third, a third of mankind was rather significant, that it was a great loss of life. Yet we see that even in this loss of life, even in this judgment, even in this destruction, visible destruction, uh, the response of sinners is still a hardened response. We see the same in Romans 1, verse 32. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Those who do such things, those who disobey the Lord, are worthy of death. And so also here, that uh, it's not hidden, it's written upon man's conscience. We have the contrast between angels and demons also. As we think about, what is an angel? Well, literally means messenger. And you think about, what does God use angels for? Hebrews 1.14 says, Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Meaning that an angel's purpose was that they were supposed to minister to those who will inherit salvation, meaning the elect. Their, their job is to minister to God's people. Angels were often used as messengers by God. And you think about the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, that afterwards Satan departed and we're told angels came to minister to him. And then we think about, well, what, what does that mean for a demon then? If a, if a demon is a fallen angel, and if, if angels are ministering spirits, they're supposed to be a blessing, they're supposed to be edifying, then you would think that, a fallen angel, a demon, would be doing the exact opposite. They'd be doing harm. They'd be attempting to, uh, to tear down. That uh, their work would be entirely contrary of the work of an angel. And here we see that their work, the work of demons, was to tor torment and ultimately to destroy. We have in verses 20 and 21 at the end here... Uh, we have an unexpected result. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Despite the great loss of life, men still did not repent of their sins and turn to Christ for life. When, whenever there is a, a proclamation of judgment, whenever there is great tragedy, whenever there is uh, God's hand at work, a visible hand, these are all opportunities for sinners to say there will be a judgment to come. This is just a foretaste of it. This is just uh, God showing us that he is in control of all things. 
Sin is inherently stupid and illogical. Sin refuses to admit defeat. Sin continues to hold to that which is false. Sin is that which refuses to humble oneself and to trust in the Lord. In Matthew 5.25, Jesus gives this instruction. He says, make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and you be thrown into prison. This is the wisdom that Jesus speaks of. Hey, listen, you're being taken to court. There's going to be a case against you. Have you thought about whether or not you're going to win or you're going to lose? If you're the underdog, just think about it. Jesus is saying, hey, they have the expensive lawyers who have the connections with the judges. Do you think you're going to win? He's saying, you ought to be settling. You ought to be attempting to make peace with this opponent outside of court so that you don't end up in prison. So also, when we think about uh, the, the prison of eternity, the prison of hell, how often do sinners say, all of these things, the sufferings, the turmoils, the torments in this life, they're a reminder that we all answer to God. We will face Him at the judgment seat. Are we going to be doing exactly this, an attempt to make friends quickly with your opponent at law? The, the white throne of judgment that we will all face? Do you realize that God has provided a means? He's provided a way. It's through His Son, Jesus Christ. He's given us exceedingly great terms. The gospel terms. Sinners, turn from your sins. Embrace the promises of the gospel. Forsake your sins and follow Jesus Christ. Believe that his righteousness is perfect. It is sufficient for you. We cannot come up with better terms than this. That God, our God, is exceedingly generous. Here, we ought not to expect that sinners will make sense. That they'll make rational, wise, and, and good decisions. This is exactly what we see here in verses 20 and 21. The rest of mankind, those, the, the two-thirds who weren't killed, were told they still refuse to repent. We think about these idols of gold and silver and bronze, stone and wood. Is that merely non-Christians? Is that merely the unbelievers? Or does this describe our own sins? That we have, sin, that we have idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood. Are we turning from our sins of idolatry? Do we seek too much comfort in the things of this world? You, you realize oftentimes it's going to be a fine line. Because here one can say, hey, God has told me I need to work hard. I need to be diligent. Well, okay. He, he doesn't call us that we would be lazy. That's correct. But being diligent acknowledges that there are only so many hours in the day and in the week. Is it because that we're sinful and unbelieving is it that we're using this diligence as an excuse of, you know what, I can't rest any day of the week. I can't make it to worship because uh, I need to be working constantly. Oftentimes, uh, these sins are the, the, uh, the exaggerations of certain things that God does expect of us and require of us. That there were murders and sorceries, sexual immorality and theft is an acknowledgement that the heart of murder is really hatred. 
that when we harbor discontent or bitterness or hatred towards others, that we have become murderers. That sorceries, you think about what's behind it, is a desire for power and knowledge. But God has given that to us in his word. That he's given us the power of prayer that we should go to often for him. That sexual immorality, it's attempting to seek pleasure outside of the limits that God has given us, his word. And regarding theft, it's desire for riches uh, without uh, the proper means of obtaining it. God reminds us, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This is Hebrews 10.31. <clears throat> Here we think about Revelation 9. With all its imagery and uh, it's all its symbolism here, we think about the big picture, what it reminds us of. It reminds us of ultimate victory for Christ and those who are his co-heirs. Those who oppose Christ and follow demons will lose. It reminds us also of the urgency of the gospel message. There is an understanding that the good news is often rejected and despised by sinners. But you realize God's design in having his people, having the church bring the good news to others. It's not always with the end of salvation. Part of God's design for the good news to go forward is that others will reject it and despise it and bring greater judgment upon themselves. But yet God is still calling sinners to repentance. And faith in Jesus Christ, he's still calling them the sinners today. And he, and he tells us that we ought to continue to share this good news with others. There's also the reminder about comfort. The comfort that you have in being able to go to the Lord in suffering, in hardship, in loneliness. That the unbeliever, they have nowhere else to turn. But you have true comfort in the Lord our God. It's also a reminder that there will be the satanic attacks of deception and delusion. And that your defense is the word of God. You must cling to it. You must know it. You must trust in it. And his word is indeed sufficient for us. There's also the reminder about the marginalization, the shame, the ridicule, the reviling that comes with God's people. As you follow Jesus Christ, expect that it won't be the popular opinion. But understand that it's particularly during these times that God tests your faithfulness and mine, that we will be ridiculed and reviled. But God expects his people to be faithful to him, especially when there's opposition. And that we ought to live in such a way that we have hope that God is redeeming a people of his very own. That we go to our God together.